Hello, I'm Billy Jacobson, a partner at Allen & Overy focusing on white-collar criminal work, including FCPA defense, investigations, and compliance. This is part of a series of web chats recorded during this period of self-isolation with prominent folks in the anti-corruption world to help keep everyone informed and to help keep me from being overly depressed during the coldest, wettest DC spring in recent memory. I'm joined today by Natalia Shahada, the Chief Compliance Officer at Technip FMC, a large diversified company providing a variety of services in the oil and gas sector. Uh, full disclosure, Natalia and I worked together at Weatherford International several years ago, and I have to say is one of the most talented lawyers I've ever worked with in my career, as well as just a wonderful person. So how's that for an introduction, Natalia? I'm humbled, and I certainly owe you a check in the mail, my friend. <laughs> oh, good. I will collect. So tell me, how are you holding up during this self-isolation period? Where are you? Who are you with, if you don't mind saying? Thank you. I am in Houston, Texas. Um, and here with Kareem, um, whom you know, my beloved partner, um, and we are safe and healthy, feel very blessed um, in that way. And thankfully, our family um, that stretches, you know, from Houston, Madrid, um, Russell's Beirut in California and New York, uh, they are all the same. And so there's much to be grateful for in these amazingly challenging times. So thanks for asking. And you know that I'm thinking the same for you and your loved ones. So Natalia, the role of chief compliance officer is very hands-on, especially for someone like you. You have oodles of energy and you're usually traveling extensively, preaching the compliance gospel. So how are you, above all people, uh, managing during this period where you uh, can't be in person with either your team or the rest of the business? It has really stretched our creativity, I would say, in this time, because our passion, as you note, it remains the same in terms of dedication. So we connect with our beloved compliance team daily, actually. We do it through Microsoft Teams, no plug intended. We post, I post a daily message to the team, really just aimed at maintaining a key sense of community and solidarity during these unbelievable times. And then we just try and interject a little bit of joy. We do a recipe share, a photo share, Netflix recommendations. And in a little bit, I'll tell you about how we parlay that same approach beyond the compliance team to daily outreach to the broader Technip FMC family. Are you using teams to communicate with one another via chats um, or are you also incorporating video team meetings and, and how extensively if so? Sure, it's a great question, all of the above. So um, the daily messages and photo share is via the chat function in Teams. Um, our compliance leadership team meets weekly by video and certainly more frequently as needed. We get the whole global team together on a monthly basis. And, you know, that's a cadence that we had before COVID-19 and the oil and gas commodity crisis and a cadence that we've felt an absolute commitment to maintain during this period. And I have to say those calls now may focus a little bit less on the progression of the compliance 2020 agenda. And it's a lot more about seeing beloved faces, um, seeing lots of children um, <laughs> join our team meetings video-wise, um, and really just trying to find some moments of connection. Yeah, no, that's great. 
Um, and the previously b before the COVID nineteen crisis and the and the and the pricing crisis in the oil and gas industry, had your team meet had your weekly team meetings been uh, via video or just via audio? So they've been via video. I have to say I'm a little bit um, obsessive about that point. And what I mean is, like it or not, my team's always going to find my face on the video. I feel very important just as part of my leadership mantra to express to them in every way I can that I'm present, that we may not be sitting geographically in the same space, in the same country, or even in the same hemisphere, but that I'm just trying to make every possible effort to be with them I see that as a very key part of my job. It's not just serving as the enterprise chief compliance officer, but it's really in service to every teammate on the team. Not everybody will ignite their video, um, and we give them that grace to say, hey, I can't be on video today, and that's totally cool. Um, but otherwise, we are a team that um, in these times, and everybody, the planet started reverting to be it Zooms, Zoom or Teams or other tools, we were a team that already had a great practice in motion of, of video connection. Well, that's great that you already had that up and running. You already had that cadence. Uh, that's wonderful. So let, let's uh, switch gears and talk about the messaging and training to the rest of the company. How is that going in this period? Sure. So as I said, we feel the commitment to maintain a sense of community and solidarity, not just within our team, but around the topic of integrity as a whole for all the women and men that serve in the Technique FMC organization. And so we are just extending actually what we were doing already. And by that, I mean, we had a strong approach in using virtual tools. So we are a company that makes very fertile use of Yammer. It's, you've probably heard of it. It's kind of an internal company Twitter a tool. And so we yammer almost daily. I would say the cadence difference is we were yammering weekly pre-COVID-19. We are yammering daily now. We had prior to these crises, a monthly podcast series on integrity and compliance. And we have committed to maintain that podcast series during these times. And in fact, just this week recorded a podcast on retaliation, telling the stories of Navy Captain Brent Crozier, and Chinese physician and martyr, um, Wen Yong, who has passed away, unfortunately, um, following his first setting of the alarm of the COVID-19 crisis in China. So we're trying to parlay that sense of community and solidarity to the enterprise and uh, making sure that we're doing our best to remind everyone about the integrity first mantra, which is really inherent in the value the core belief and value proposition of the organization set by our chairman of the board and, and the management team. And I'm super encouraged during these times that we've had country managers, you know, large and small, high risk and low, take those messages and cascade them to their teams. I had our India country manager recently uh, yammer out, hey, did you hear Natalia's podcast? Not bad. Take a listen. And so we appreciate there's a lot of unscripted I think from the heart communications going on um, and our aim is just to keep it fresh and keep it personal and keep it present, present mind. That's great. Uh, those sorts of regular communications are invaluable, especially when you can use such very recent examples, things that are in the news that people are seeing in the, in the mainstream media as examples and a, bring a compliance lens to those, to those news stories. I think that's wonderful. How about the investigations function? That might be a little more tricky for a number of different reasons to continue during this remote period. I am so proud of our team. 
we really, I think through grit um, and commitment have not lost a lot of time. And our team operates virtually on an ordinary basis. We leverage our region compliance team under the leadership of our head of investigations and our allegations manager to be really executing those investigations on a day-to-day basis in partnership with our investigative network. You know, that can be like our senior counsel over monitoring and testing, our senior counsel over anti-bribery and corruption compliance, or partners in human resources and uh, quality, health, safety, security, other, other functions. So I would say where it relates to our team being able to execute investigative work plans and our individual actions, I repeat, we really amazingly haven't missed a beat. We've naturally been sensitive to calling upon our teammates within the broader organization because we all appreciate life is the farthest thing from normal right now. And so we're trying to turn our attention to what we can progress. And thankfully, we've been able to progress quite a bit. I think on the broader, you might say, sort of investigation slash monitoring side where you recall, you know, activities like operational compliance reviews, obviously deployments, country deployments and travel for that kind of activity has ceased. But again, trying to come up with creative and very importantly, respectful ways to progress and respectful, meaning not causing any undue burden to our employees in this challenging time and just trying to create an understanding with them that what we are progressing is really uh, in thoughtful consideration of just trying to keep the organization safe. Do you think that with regard to the investigations function, would you say that perhaps there are some bits of an investigation that were once done in person, most commonly done in person, which given your experience now, you may be able to continue to do by telephone or by video conference, um, given your experience during this period? Absolutely. I think the planet going through this crisis and its large scale pivot to utilization of video technologies, you can imagine it's a lot easier to ask a witness to do that today than it might have been six months ago. Um, where we would have made that risk-based determination of, does somebody get on an airplane um, or travel to create that face-to-face experience? I think we're staring ahead at a very changed world with respect to the tools we will need and be expected to lever to ensure progress and continuity of these risk-based efforts, but in a really different way. Yeah, I agree. I think that our frequent flyer mileage accounts may suffer a bit, but we will 100%. save our clients. We'll, we'll save our enterprises in your case and our clients in my case uh, a fair bit of money by realizing we can do a lot more remotely than we thought we could effectively. Well, switching gears uh, entirely, let me ask you about the FCPA investigation, the anti corruption investigation that Technip FMC settled not too uh, long ago. So for those uh, of our listeners who don't know, in June of 2019, the company resolved an FCPA investigation with the DOJ uh, for about $296 million, stemming from conduct in Iraq and Brazil. And in September of 2019, the company settled with the SEC on books and records and internal controls charges and paid about $5 million in penalty. 
Now, some, some key facts about those settlements, and then I'll ask you a couple of questions. The DOJ agreement was a deferred prosecution agreement with the parent company. A subsidiary, Technique USA, pled guilty to conspiracy to violate the FCPA. And as I said, the DOJ settlement was for $296 million, but 214 of that, the vast majority of that, went to the Brazilian authorities, where the company was able to simultaneously settle with the AGU, the CGU, and the MPF, marking the first time a company had settled simultaneously with all three of these Brazilian regulators and the Department of Justice. I'll also note that the company achieved a 25% reduction off of the U.S. sentencing guidelines as per the DPA. And lastly, that there is still an investigation by French authorities open with regard to the company's conduct or alleged conduct in Ghana and Equatorial Guinea. So with that preamble, a few questions about the settlement, Natalia. It was obviously a significant win for the company to not have a monitor imposed. Instead, the company is to self-report on the remediation of its compliance program and the implementation of new controls. Uh, three uh, reports are required by the Deferred Prosecution Agreement. So what can you say about how that particular part of the DPA came about? In other words, how did you convince DOJ and the SEC that the compliance program was sufficiently mature and effective so as not to require a monitor and to allow self-reporting instead? Well, I think the best way to explain it is the company's decade-long commitment to compliance. So the reality is there had been a prior enforcement action in 2010 of Legacy Technique and other contractors involved in the Boney Island project in Nigeria. And so that event was an existential, provoked an existential shift in the organization vis-a-vis its commitment to integrity and compliance. And so then started a very progressive and committed journey in the compliance space. So I think that's point number one. Two is that we were able to evidence iterative enhancements to the compliance program over nearly that decade. You know, but for the Unioil conduct, the other conduct that makes up the majority of the DPA was previously identified by the company, not self-disclosed at the election of the company. And by virtue of it having been previously self-detected, if you will, the company rightly remediated that conduct over time. And that became a critically important aspect of the story, as you can imagine. Credit has to be given to the chief compliance officers at the time, um, Sylvie Condé de Beaupuy, uh, Nathalie Gouache, and senior counsel Steve Verkin. They were committed from 2010 forward to operating a best-in-class program and committed to what kind of the community expected as best-in-class then. And as noncompliance events were identified, remediating the same. And so that became the really the core of the story. And I think the third point is we aimed to, at the same time, bring humility to the story. Confidence around what we felt the organization had, shall we say, gotten right in terms of self-identification and remediation and continuous improvement, but humility around what opportunities remained. And we've been candid publicly that there were opportunities in the story of the identification of the conduct around timeliness of discipline and improvements that could have been made there. And our leadership team in meeting with 
the DOJ was very candid and frank about decisions that we would make today had we been around those decision tables at that time, this being legacy conduct. And we certainly hope, we, we can't be sure um, about how ultimately all the decisions were made, but those are the inputs that we aimed and hoped would net the outcome that it did in terms of just having a self-reporting obligation, which to us is a meaningful for the company, a meaningful result, nonetheless, one that we take very seriously. Yeah, it's, it's not to say that the absence of a monitor means that the remedial activities you have to do and the reporting thereof are not burdensome. I assume they are. I, I further assume, but uh, I'd ask you to confirm that as part of the resolution process, you made presentations to the department and to the SEC about your compliance program. You walked them through the various components of the compliance program, and they must have gotten some confidence that the program was of a sufficient maturity that even though maybe some remediation was necessary, it was at a point where perhaps the stronger hand of a monitor was not necessary. I think that's right. I think we were through the the, the iterative story, we were able to evidence an anti-bribery and corruption program that was keenly focused on the conduct at issue. And that was corruption through third-party intermediaries, specifically on the sales side. And so, you know, that I think we all agree is certainly not the only risk, but it is a, it is a significant risk. And that's really where keen attention was focused um, to ensure continuous improvement. And you're right. We certainly identified opportunities where over almost a decade comfort had been gained in certain processes such that we felt that we might be able to reduce some of the bureaucracy to ensure a more lean approach and to therefore give greater assurance of its, you know, complete adoption and opportunities to round out, you know, other aspects of the program that nonetheless can pose anti-bribery and corruptions risk, be it our, uh, the strength of our investigative practices, our continuous monitoring and testing, our training and conflicts of interest and other um, important ancillary parts of the program. Let's focus just for another moment, if we could, on the third-party diligence issue. Because that is, of course, the issue that bedevils most companies. It's where most FCPA cases uh, arise from. If you're comfortable saying, could you name one or two, perhaps, of the process enhancements with regard to third-party due diligence that came out of this settlement? Absolutely. Um, and get ready, because what I'm about to share, I appreciate, and our community is controversial. So... Simply put, the conclusion we've reached, and it's a little bit of a delicate needle to thread, was communicating to the agencies that we had robust processes and the same processes that they hear other companies who take these issues and this area seriously, that we had that battened down. But it'd be terribly remiss if I were to look at the agencies and say, we had these corrupt events in spite of having those practices. And nonetheless, I'm going to continue those practices. So it's a long-winded way of saying we're actually throwing out our diligence approach. What do I mean by that? We diligenced the agents that were involved in corruption in our case. Now, make no mistake, I'm not here to do anything but take full responsibility for what happened. And naturally, that corruption was facilitated by individuals who are no longer affiliated with our organization. 
But we have to humbly atone for the fact that the procedures didn't work. They didn't stop the proverbial suitcase of cash for contracts. So why on earth would I continue to ask the organization to invest the sums of money and the human capital to continue doing things the same way? Not going to do it. So what we're looking to do, and you are completely fluent in the arduous nature that our community has created of the front-end pre-engagement due diligence process, the proverbial questionnaire exchange and the certifications and so on and so forth, that in some cases can take months. We're going to aim to shrink that down to days. And my feeling is the amount of information you actually need to know to make a go or no-go decision on a relationship really relates to high-ticket, shall I say, bio-details of the party. Ma, what I'm proffering is we're going to take all the investment dollars left. We're not going to save them. We're going to shift them. And we're going to shift them to far more robust monitoring and testing activities over the life of the relationship. Because Billy, you and I have talked among our peer community. If you ask someone, how many pre-engagement diligence requests do you decline? The average rate is less than 4%. Then you ask the question, of all of those relationships on an annualized basis, how many are you testing? The average is less than 10%. The math just doesn't add up. The risk is high. There needs to be more attention. It's not about getting more heads and hands and legs around the situation. I think it's working smarter. I don't disagree with the heavy emphasis on monitoring and testing after the fact, but what is it about the front end that you think you can eliminate saving costs and time? The arduous questionnaire exchange. So, you know, I've now seen this running in a couple of companies, and it seems, in my humble opinion, over the course of at least a decade, we've gotten more comfortable the more questions we add to that questionnaire. And certainly in our case, it had grown to a questionnaire that was almost 36 pages long. You're communicating across languages. So much human capital time was lost just in translating. What on earth was it we were trying to get asked, number one? Number two, if you ask the professionals around the process whether the input from the prospective TPI to that question would materially move the needle, 90% of the questions, and I'm speaking just in our case, okay, just vis-a-vis our approach, but we realized that about 90% of those questions are not needle movers. It was really a check the box to say that we asked it to say that it was in the file, you know, otherwise known as the proverbial CYA. I don't attribute value there. Very interesting approach. And I think we should probably schedule a time to do a podcast just on this issue alone, because we could certainly spend at least 30 or 40 minutes talking about it. Let me switch gears real quick, because we are running a little short on time, and ask you how you felt about the um, coordination in, in reaching the settlement, how you felt about the coordination between and amongst the Brazilian authorities and vis-a-vis DOJ, and if there's anything you can share about that dynamic. You know me too, Chatty, so I look forward to <laughs> future opportunity. No, 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 <laughs> um, it's all good. So I can't say enough positive things about the commitment, truly, by 
the five authorities involved in reaching the settlement. It, without them, it would not have been possible. But I will offer to your to you, to your listeners and, our, and to our community, for anyone who may be around similar tables, that it was a tremendous learning opportunity for me to accept and take on an equal responsibility in championing the need for that collaboration or that, as we call it, that proverbial one bad news day. And simply put, the authorities, it is not their responsibility to be minding the interests of my shareholders. And so I found that it was incredibly important for me, for our team, to be explaining to them the impacts on stock price, the impact on shareholder sentiment, the impact of shareholder anxiety on customer anxiety and supply chain anxiety. And so I would say humbly, it was really a collaborative effort to ensure that the coordination was there. But I also want to take a moment to champion the Brazilians, you know, former attorney general um, in Brazil and now minister of justice, Andre Mendoza was key in recognizing on behalf of the AGU, who had not been a particularly involved player previously, that there was an opportunity in the Brazilian marketplace to show national cooperation and what kind of comfort that could give in speeding up resolution of cases with DOJ and other authorities. So, you know, I think they deserve particular credit. Is it similarly fair to say that the French authorities perhaps were not as convinced? I wouldn't characterize it that way. I would say I think they are just as interested, just as willing and the opportunity remains there. I have to say that the learning for me, vis-a-vis the collaboration and ongoing collaboration with our colleagues at the PNF, was to recognize that our legal systems are vastly different. Mm-hmm. Look, we're all trying to champion an anti-corruption movement globally from an enforcement perspective, and we support it 100%. But the systems are not the same. The evidentiary standards are not the same. The defensive practices are not the same, and the comfort level between authorities regarding corporate cooperation is not the same. And so with all those distinctions, I think I underestimated, given my lack of appreciation of those points until I was sort of in the soup, I think it was an underestimation to think okay, these vastly different countries with vastly different legal systems can all reach, you know, an accord to assure my shareholders one bad news day. So we progressed as strong and committed as we could, but I can't deny that I had a really U.S.-centric mindset over the mission, if you will, to solve the case. And so I think it's an opportunity to enhance our awareness about the distinctions in prosecutorial philosophy. Otherwise, I think those collaborative efforts can backfire. So, Natalia, in closing, uh, let me ask you two sort of more personal questions with regard to this period of self-isolation that we're all in. Give me one thing that you miss most from the outside world right now. I miss hugs. (laughs) I miss hugging my parents. Yeah. Um, And I just feel like the planet needs a collective hug, you know? Oh, yeah. Big time. I I look forward to that day and hope, um, you know, we treat Mother Earth, I think, the way she's asking for us to treat her. Yeah, definitely. And how about, to end on a positive note, how about one positive thing that has come out of this period for you? 
Absolutely. I think a tremendous shared vulnerability. So in the wise words of Brene Brown, if anybody's read about Dr. Brown, the recognition of the power in being vulnerable in your family, with your partner, with your team. And that vulnerability then builds the sense of community that we're aspiring for, and it builds the strength of solidarity. And so it's okay to talk about the very blue day we had yesterday with confidence to say, but the sun's going to set tonight and the sun's going to rise again tomorrow, and we're all in it together. That's a great point. I, I found in a little bit of a different way, in addition to what you said, in joining a new law firm during this crisis. And so meeting most of my colleagues for the first time via video conference. And as opposed to the recruitment process, when everyone's in their best suits and ties, really meeting your colleagues who are all wearing t-shirts and sweatshirts and their sweatpants, and they've got the kids running around, like you mentioned earlier, and the pets barking in the background, brings sort of this, hey, we're all just people with all just, you know, with families, hopefully, and just doing our best to get through this crisis. And that that shared vulnerability and that shared, um, I think, will increase comfort with one another going forward. I hope so anyway. I hope so too. You know, a better humanity as a result. Well, Natalia, thank you so much for your time. This has been a great discussion. And I think we should have another discussion about just third-party diligence because your views are really interesting. And I think we need to explore them a little more. I would love that. Okay. Well, thank you so much. Be well. Thank you. You too, my friend. Thank you.